The Athletic. Hello, welcome to a bonus episode of the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. You find me, Ali Maxwell, and my co-host, Tom Warville, in our big coats here at the training ground of MK Dons. We're watching Milton Keynes Dons prepare for an FA Cup match this weekend against Stevenage. Liam Manning, the head coach, is putting the players through their paces. There's a lot of snoods and gloves on show, as you might expect, and Tom and I have been commenting on how nice all those footballs are that they get to use, much nicer than the ones that we have to play with in our pesky games of five and six aside. The, the reason we're here is to line up an interview with the sporting director of MK Dons, Liam Sweeting, someone who Tom and I have been wanting to speak to for a few months now, uh, partly because in football tactics terms, MK Dons play a very extreme possession-based style, particularly relative to the level that they play at, England's third tier, League One. But also, as you guys know, Tom Warville often talks about the sporting director role within clubs, the role where the club's medium to long-term health is the objective, and player recruitment and manager recruitment are really important aspects of that role. That's why we want to speak to Liam Sweeting, because MK Dons have been through a really interesting period, both over the last year or so, developing this extreme style of play, and also in his role, recruiting players to fit that style this summer, and recruiting a head coach with just six days before the start of this season. Liam's been kind and invited us to watch a little bit of training, uh, but the business end of this episode will take place back at Stadium MK in the boardroom. That's where we're going to head now to chat with Liam Sweeting. we talk a lot on the pod about teams who have good process and teams we kind of admire and think are kind of leaders in the game off the pitch in terms of planning and, and strategy and recruitment and we're always talking about you know Liverpool and Brentford and Brighton and, and RB Leipzig um, <laughs> and I think that you know Ali we've spoken a lot about um, you know MK Dons being a team that are in a tier below but are trying to do things a different way and are probably the next up and arguably kind of within that same bracket with a lower level of resources so Fantastic for us to be able to, to speak to Liam today, for sure. Thank you very much for having us. How are you getting on today, Liam? Yeah, good. Now, that's a really good summary. I appreciate that. It's obviously on on Tom's bucket list as well to take Milton Keynes off. So that's <laughs> fantastic to hear. Absolutely. A lot of what you've said there um, that kind of rings true to the way we see ourselves developing um, and trying to be competitive at this level, but then also sustainable at the next level. Hmm. Well, we're going to get deeper into it and, and try and get a, a deeper understanding of, of how you guys are operating. Uh, and there's going to be three main parts to this, all of which hit our sort of central tenets, I think, to the Football Tactics podcast. We're going to start with uh, MK Don's tactical setup, style of play, footballing philosophy. There are lots of different words for it. Uh, in part two, we're going to ask you about recruitment. You know, Previously head of recruitment, now as sporting director, this is a key part of your role and, and we'll talk about recruiting players to a specific style. And then the third part is a really interesting case study, I guess we would call it. This is your job. And it was important because uh, recruiting a manager uh, is something that I find fascinating, possibly not as well written about, covered as player recruitment, transfers, etc. Uh, but with one week before the start of the league season, uh, MK Don's manager, Russell Martin, took a job in uh, the level above with Swansea City. So Liam's job was to find a new manager on the eve of a season uh, to fit the squad that had been built for the previous manager. So those are, are the three parts of what we're going to talk about today. But as this is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast, we'll start with MK Don's style of play. 
Um, Tom's going to admonish me for focusing too much on possession percentage, but it's a good way of explaining to those listening who don't follow League One as closely as, as some of us uh, as to why we would want to talk to you about this. Uh, starting really, to my eyes anyway, from last season under the previous manager, Russell Martin, we started to notice that MK Dons wanted to keep hold of the football uh, to an, a fairly extreme extent at the level at which you play. So the headline stat from last season uh, is that if you look at the top five European leagues and you add the three EFL divisions, uh, in terms of possession percentage, Barcelona over the course of the season, 62% of the top, Manchester City 61%, PSG 60% alongside MK Don. So initially the question is, Liam, how did this come about? Why such an extreme style of play when it comes to keeping hold of the football. Why is that the route that you guys have gone down? I think it's really interesting if you look at the history of the club, really, and it probably even predates Russ and and that kind of moment, really, because when I joined the club, I, I felt that I was leaving um, I was leaving a Premier League club at the time who had a clear style and identity, and I, I was coming to a club in League One that I felt had the same. Um, and that's probably going back to, you know, when they... In, in the early days when they had Paul Ince in charge, when Di Matteo was in charge, there was there was still a reputation for exciting attacking football. Um, and then what came after that is then a sustained period with one manager, with, with Carl Robinson. And that was probably, that's kind of my memory of MK Dons when I joined the club. That's, that's the go-to team and that team had possession, they had control and they were exciting attacking football. Um, then there was a, there was you know it's not all it's not all plain sailing it's not all success. There was a few rough patches where the, the club perhaps came away from that slightly. Um, they got relegated to League Two. They they came back at the first time of asking. That's when I that's when I joined the club. Um, and then Russ took over, and that was that was the moment where the club really went back to um, the style of play that it was known for before. Um, and what we had in Russ was somebody, an, ab an absolute purist, who saw the game um, and he has complete belief in, in the way he sees it. Um, and alongside that then is lockdown and is playing without, without the pressure of supporters. So the team evolved really quickly and the style evolved really quickly. And we, as you said, some of those stats are based on uh, on games behind closed doors. Um, so that, that was a really interesting period. And... Um, as you as you said in the intro about recruiting Russ's replacement, um, we certainly feel that the elements of control, the possession, are the non-negotiables for us now. They're broad, but that's what we want to be known for. That's what the chairman wants his teams to reflect. Um, so yeah, that's that's ultimately what how we are where we are. I mean, you talk about aesthetics and entertainment uh, as important parts of of the style of play and why you move back to to playing like this. Uh, listening to Russell Martin last season, whenever he was asked about this, because when a team is doing something like this, people like us uh, and other members of the media want to find out more, want to ask questions. Um, and of course it comes with, uh, with a, a sort of added factor of other clubs maybe turning their noses up a little bit to, they're not doing anything special. So teams might have an extra edge against a team like this. You know, we, we want to beat the guys that think they can just have the ball all of the time. What I noticed, as you say, Russ Martin being a purist was, this wasn't to do with some idea of footballing aesthetics, but a true belief that it was the right way to play in order to, to win football matches at this level. So I guess that the question is, why the, the strong belief that more and more possession, essentially what was being measured to suggest that this was going to lead to a, an uptick in results? Yeah, sure. Well, um, you know, one thing Russ and, and Liam share is that they both told me within the last year that, that people don't grow up wanting to play channel balls and, and win flick-ons and, you know, fight for things in on second balls. So I think that's probably where it comes from, from for those two individuals is is the way they see the game is, is the way that it's most enjoyed by them. And if you look at where we want to go to and, and the next step for the club is championship football and then hopefully competing at that level, we feel that uh, this style of football can transition to that level better than if we were if we were playing and, and we were measuring second balls or we were measuring aerial dual success, for example. Um, and then the third part is probably actually attracting players. So how how can we make ourselves different to a lot of the other clubs at this level? Um, and actually what, what we've seen both under us and under Liam is that players want to come here to play in this style of football. So I guess just looking at a few more numbers uh, to add to the ones that Ali suggested at the top there. So you're... This season under under Liam Manning, it's first in sequence time uh, per possession, first in passes per sequence. Uh, you've had the most uh, sequences of, of possession with ten or more passes, the most of those which have led to a shot or a touch in the box. Is it some? 
is it kind of surprising for you and your journey yourself within football that this style of play has been accomplishable within the third tier of English football, both from a kind of technical and tactical point of view? Because it feels that the idea that we see a style which is heavily influenced, I guess, by Pep Guardiola and, and you know, positional play and all these factors would be able to be you know, played out at this level seems quite alien maybe 10 years ago but now it seems kind of second nature that we have teams like you guys uh, I guess Bolton to some extent as well trying to do similar-ish things that actually this is a style of play which can work and you can have 60% possession you can completely dominate and, and create chances and be successful at this level with that yeah, sure. I mean, everything, everything improves over time, doesn't it, generally? But I, th- I think the influx of, of academy coaches into the level as well, as there's a lot of teams that, that have had success in taking players, uh, ex-players or or coaches that, that have had a long career now coaching the game, so they feel comfortable enough to come in and, and actually implement it. I think that's a big change. We see we see a lot of them at our level currently. Um, but I think it speaks for the the evolution of, of the of the EFL that we've seen probably over, over the last five to ten years really is that actually um, there are clubs operating quite interestingly at this level and doing things slightly different that, that we've done ten years ago and and ultimately I think people are are seeing the opportunity to drive change as opposed to being fearful of of getting the sack and then that's that's probably a positive change and you, we've seen clubs you know there are two there are probably a handful of clubs in League One that are sporting directors now. That's a sign that the manager's probably better protected to implement a style that the club's thinking about long term. So, um, but yeah, I, I just think it's 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 encouraging for League One, League Two that we're starting to see these interesting styles uh, develop. I know that you're not the manager, but I know that you work very closely with the manager or head coach, as it is here at MK Dons. And from a tactical perspective, under Russell Martin and, and still under Liam Manning, the general shape formation, as we would describe it, is a, a three-four-one-two, uh, and in the manner of, of of style that you guys play, as discussed, we're talking about um, certainly a, a one particular centre back in Dean Lewington, who plays on the left side of the three, being really the, the first playmaker of the side, um, excelling at playing penetrative forward passes, uh, ball playing central midfielders, wing backs that that have more touches in the final third than most wingers at the level, uh, number ten uh, and two up top as well. Uh, in terms of implementing the, the game model, the style of play and, and dominating possession, how important do you think? Or, or with discussions that you've had with, with various head coaches, how important is that shape and formation to this style of play and getting the best out of it? Or how much do you think it could be adaptable with, with players in different areas or um, you know, a four-two-three-one, for example? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. A lot of people assume that we recruited the head coach based on, on the shape of the team, but that wasn't the case at all. So the, answer, the short answer to the question is it's not important at all, the system. Um, it's the principles that absolutely are. So, um, and also, where does the coach get those principles from? What are they based on? And that, that's probably something we'll come on to later. But um, so, you know, when you've lost two or three games in a row, what are his actual core principles? That's always quite interesting. Um, so, yeah, the answer is is not important. Uh, you know, if when I look at Liam's profile, he was four two three one at Lommel all last year. Um, and when Russ took over, he played a diamond formation for the first eight months of of the job so we just landed on on the three and now the squad's very much set up for that um but yeah absolutely it's it's the principles rather than the individual tactics because because i can't as a sporting director or even as as a club we can't dictate what the manager's going to play system wise or or tactically we have to set the broad principles and then allow him that's the reason we gave him the job to to apply those type of things so obviously we spoke there about the formation you're saying it's more important that the the principles are there and the principles of play are the things that ultimately lead you to a manager, leads you to picking someone who's going to meet the style of the club. For you as a sporting director, what interest is there in kind of measuring how you're sticking to those principles and the improvement of play in line with those um, throughout the season? Are there certain things that you come back to regularly to understand, right, I want to know the vitals, I want to have my finger on the pulse of where this team is at right now? I remember very famously a uh, uh Russell Martin press conference last season where he was being questioned about the start of play which came after every defeat and of course praised for the start of play in the good times as well where he talked very specifically about um, the the concept of needing a plan B which in English football terms means bringing on a tall striker and and pumping balls up to him and seeing what happens Um, and, and very specific to Tom's questions why I jumped in he talked about this start of play gets us entries into the opposition box three times as much as 
the opposition enter our box. And that felt to me like potentially one of the things that you guys were measuring uh, to try and assess the success of, of how you're playing. Yeah, sure. I mean, you talk about how much is my finger on the pulse with it. I'm, I've got an analysis background. My first part of my career was a, a performance analyst. Our performance director is is a scientist. Part of, part of his background is uh, sports science. Um, so in, in order to create an evidence-based culture, obviously my emphasis is how are we performing data-wise? And there's there's the statistics on, on the surface that people kind of know us for, which is possession and the number of passes our centre-halves make, Dean Lewington. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, the, they're the non-negotiables, if you like, because if we're going to play with control, those things have to happen. The next layer to that then is things like shots and shots inside the box. So, you know, straight away half-time, how many shots have we had inside the box? That's kind of my go-to to see how we're performing. Are we getting the box entries? Are we getting into the right areas? And the same have we conceded. And then after the game, obviously, then you go into the advanced models, which is the stuff we were talking about just just earlier, is expected threat, expected goals. Um, and part of the control, part of squeezing the game and actually having the ball is to increase the chances of us creating a better chance and restricting the opposition. So that is almost, as we, as we start talking statistically, that's how the style looks. Um, so, yeah, it's been... It, it, it's been a huge part of what we do. Um, what we have to now improve on is is control in all moments. So even when we're defending a counter-attack, do we still look controlled? And can our back three defend when they're exposed? Things like that. They're the, they're the improvement elements to come, I think, in the, in the next part of the season, hopefully. It's really interesting now that you mentioned expected threat, which I think we did a, a whole podcast on earlier. And that's kind of the, you know, moving away from from shots moving away from XG and actually looking at okay possession in dangerous areas doesn't always lead to shots but is still productive and useful for you with Liam is there like the conversation of, of this is what this model is and that's something that he's exposed to or it's very much you yourself just like this is something I have and that's you know he doesn't need to know about it yeah I think um, I was prepared for the for the latter but actually he's, he's just really interested in it so um they are constantly asking for definitions, constantly asking, well, what, what does that score on it? And they like the kind of individual examples, which actually is not what the model's for at all. It's, it's based over, over lots and lots of examples, but that's the way you achieve buy-in from them. Yeah. Talk about an evidence-based culture. How do we collectively, as an analyst, as a sporting director, or our analysis department, educate the coaches to, to realise those are the things we're assessing performance and ultimately to achieve their buy-in for it's really important. So, yeah, he's... Um, He's really involved, and you know we have a couple of pages in our our new post-match report. Is expected threat and how the how the players achieved it on the day, and um, and collectively the team, and then versus over time how we how we doing as the season progresses. You just love to see that, don't you, Tom? You love to see it. <laughs> last thing on style of play specifics and tactics, and I suppose analyzing performance. Uh, last season, uh, again going back to that, I noticed that. There were 12 games that MK Dons played in the, in League One where you had 70% possession or more. And we know that you're not measuring everything by, by possession percentage. Uh, and in those 12 games, two wins, two draws and eight defeats. So, you know, we, we, should, we should say to those listening, things you didn't win every game last season. The style of play didn't lead to a, a promotion, um, a, a really strong second half of the season. Things started to click, but there were some difficult periods of results as well for the clubs. So 12 games with 70% possession or more, two wins, two draws, eight defeats. 12 games with 60% or less, seven wins, two draws, three defeats. It's an interesting wrinkle. We know that possession and higher possession doesn't equal results. When you're discussing the team with the manager and the staff and you're talking about this style of play and you're comparing things like that to results, one of the things you have to think about with trying to avoid saying, this is the wrong thing to do. We're having more possession here, but we're not winning the games. What, what sort of analytical thinking, I guess, are you applying to that? in order to keep trusting the process? The challenge has been the same this year. We, we've we just come off the back of facing Doncaster and Shrewsbury, where I would think our possession was probably high 60s because they defended very much in a low block and we weren't able to break them down and, and we made mistakes on their on their counter-attacks and we conceded. So, um, and that's, that's to do with how quickly probably the styles evolved. And this is where I go back to playing, particularly last year behind closed doors and we planned to control the ball. We, we, we planned for high possession. We didn't plan for 70% away from home against no crowd. Um, and this is where we look at, at our 
recruitment now and say, well, have we got the types of players that can open the door versus a low block? So that's that's the next part of us, really. And they actually some of those players are the hardest players to get into a possession-based team when you're relying on technical um, technical ability, reliability and understanding of a structure. Um, but they can also be the ones that open the door. So a lot of work we're doing now is how we get those players into the team and which ones are the right ones to recruit. Um, and then they will then hopefully be, you know, you see at, at the very top level when somebody just does something to unlock the door, a, a De Bruyne pass or mm. something like that, that's the go-to. Um, plays it in behind the defence when there's a, a small corridor. That's that's the type of quality we're looking at, albeit in League One. That's what a, a good effort and a fabulous goal as well. Nothing that the keeper could do about that one to keep Scott Twine at bay. That's a really nice segue for us actually to move on to the, the second part, which is around recruiting players within a specific style. Um, can you give us a bit of a top-down overview of what the recruitment process is at the club in terms of the input of data there and where you sit in kind of data versus in-person scouting, which I guess is only a, a recent thing that's come back for most clubs because of COVID, and also you know video scouting and the use of Scout and, and platforms like that? It's really easy to describe the difference because um, to the markets that are available to us, so that if we if we sign a player from the EFL, we have all the data that we would need. If we sign a player from the under-23 sector, we have virtually no data other than probably a playing record. So we have to be, our processes have to be able to input both. So for the signings of Scott Twine from Eliza, you know, extensive data work to see, you know, can we think we're going to lose Scott Fraser. What's Scott Twine like if we put him in the team? Um, if he if he's located behind the lines as a number ten, what does he do? You know, those those are the questions that the data can answer for us. And then obviously we go and watch him um, to confirm those things, and and then we present it to the coaching staff. So it's almost a data identification, a watching process, and then we get in a room with the coaching staff. And that's where I'm I'm I'm, const I'm constantly taking our our scouts away from the big yes or no, it, it doesn't need to be that. It's just what's what's the next part of the process? Is he is his player going into my conversation with the manager or not? Are we keeping him back off the list? Those things are happening constantly. Um, and then when we go, when we, when we scout the under 23 sector where there's very limited data, um, then we really have to make a call on what does he look like character wise? Do we think the personality and what he's outputting in the under 23s is actually ready to play in, in the EFL? A lot of first loans don't happen. Um, you don't always see it. A lot of the times when we're talking about players, even Troy Parrott, he's on his third loan, and he's and now it's happening. But he's 19 years old. So what do we expect? You know, these are the things that we've got to. The process has got to understand, and that's the skill of the people involved to understand that. To then ultimately, you put Scott Twine on on the screen, who we've got all the data for versus a player in the under 23s that we've got very limited data for. We all have to have the skill then to decide between the two. And that's quite niche for our level. Do you think they will get to a point when the 23s are covered at a more in-depth data level? Because it just feels like everyone wants that data, everyone needs it. Surely there's at some point, you know, someone goes, you know what, well, we're going to hopefully collect this and give it to the clubs or sell it. Like it just yeah, feels like I can't believe they search. haven't. Uh, at a minute, um, I imagined probably the reason it hasn't is because the big clubs are just doing it themselves anyway. So they've got what they want. But right. We're slightly reactive to that in, in that we have to wait for a Y Scout or an, or another data provider to fully cover that level before we can do the same work on a Scott Twine than we can on a on a Warren O'Hora, for example. And just in your your last answer it was really interesting that you said that you're using you know you're going in person to see a player to confirm what the data's saying to you, which is a really interesting thing to hear because a lot of clubs I think now there's an element of with data in clubs and data in recruitment where it's kind of a nice to have and it's a box tick and it's almost used as a as a means of using confirmation bias on a player to say we've seen him and then you use the data backwards to kind of reinforce your point. Um, I guess my question is for your own kind of recruitment philosophy how hard was that to implement here or is that something that when you were head of recruitment that's something you've always believed in is you know we need to get the balance right of not being biased. And, and trying to get the most value from both those sources of, of information, both objective through the data and the more subjective through watching players like Yeah, well, that's you, you bring us on to another challenge, really, because um, not everybody plays the way we play. Actually, most teams don't in, in Leagues 1 and Leagues 2, so not every data set can answer the question of is he a suitable player for us. You know, I go back to signing Harry Darling in, in January. Um, 
and his data was good, but it it wasn't what we would expect from a centre half playing for us. So we we have to then go to the games and say, well, yeah, there, there are a couple of things in the data that show signs that he could do what we think he can do, and then you're probably waiting for maybe four or five actions in the game. We go, yeah, that's that's the type of thing that we would like to see for us, and it maybe you know. I, we did some work on it at the time. He he went from having maybe uh, 15 to 20 passes all of a sudden to 50, 60 passes per game. So the increase was really high. So you're, you're looking at those 15 to 20 for Cambridge saying, well, are those reflective of what we want? And probably five of them are. And then you've got to make the call and you go, right, okay, but his, his athleticism and, and his character are, are all ticks. And then, okay, we think the technical ability is there to do what we need. In terms of you're saying there, like the passes that you want him to make, is that in terms of, if we're thinking of pass clustering or groups of different passes is it around this is a pass literally direction to a certain player in a certain space that you're looking for him that you think that's a pass that our centre-back will make something like that within yeah, the data in Harry's case uh, probably not that, that was more about the responsibility he was taking and uh, because obviously every team has a different tactical setup so we have to be aware of that but if if he was kind of stepping in and taking responsibility showing the personality to lead the playing out from the back which is so important to us then those are the stuff we would see on, on the other hand, we've got a, we've got a midfield player at the moment that um, has a really high skill rate of, of of playing box entries from quite deep, and that's probably a really important part of the way we're playing at the moment. Is he can he's got the vision to look up from a deep position and put somebody into the box. So that's where we can do a cluster, and we can go right. Who are the players who are doing that on a similar on a similar trend? Um, and that's where we you know that builds into our our succession planning for that particular player um, where if if he was to go and we lose that then who's out there that can replicate it It's worth reminding the listeners at this stage that this is a, a club in the third tier of English football and so budget wise um, you're not a, an RB Leipzig who can go and poach a talented young data scientist uh, from, from the athletic uh, you have to be very creative with the budget that you have at your disposal so I'd be interested to know what the sort of size of, of the team is you know the recruitment uh, the recruitment team those specifically looking at, at scouting and, uh, and recruitment uh, I know that uh, in your case and in, in a number of other cases across the EFL um, you found that there's an aspect to which uh, outsourcing uh, some of the work that you do in this regard can can be quite a cost-effective way of working. Uh, so when lockdown hit, we started working with a company called Market Insights, who who have been fantastic, to be fair. And that that was I saw that as as a shortcut for us because you know the the move that RB Leipzig have made is 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 the best way to go about it because they they're going to put a data scientist and almost a data architect in at the start. Now we didn't have the resources for that, unfortunately, but. Market Insights have got somebody that does that, so it was a shortcut into getting our data processes right. So the person who's actually actually creating the data and feeding it into the likes of me and our scouts and our and our analyst um, has the very best processes that actually none of us can replicate. Um, so that was really important. And was there any kickback from people within the club that this is a non-traditional way of doing things and actually? You know, this is a essentially a consultancy. They work with other clubs as well, but we're all about MK Dons. How, how do we trust these guys? Yeah, I think um, I, I absolutely see what you're saying. Uh, the answer is there wasn't, and that's that's obviously credit to the people above me and and the chairman and the owner and and, and kind of almost the vibe of Milton Keynes and MK Dons is okay. Let's try something new. You know, if, if you you only have to look at, at Milton Keynes the area to see how, how many different things they are around the place. Um, and the chairman and the message from the top is always giving opportunity to young people. So, if if a young person's got an idea, then he then he's willing to back it. Um, obviously, lockdown affected it because we couldn't go out to other other games, so it was a good opportunity to get them in the door. But now there was no fear process there, which is which is really important. Really, it's, it's probably fundamental to how we work. I think. Um, so drilling down a bit more specifically, obviously we mentioned a, a couple of stats there. I'm really interested in the the Scott Twine signing in the summer and someone who has such a a key role in the team, someone who has such a specific skill set, and uh, you know, not all of our listeners will be aware, but he is a pretty much a, a free kick expert to some extent, and technically one of the best players in the division. If I'm not wrong, Ali, you're absolutely right. I thought I would just jump in because this is a, a clearly, clearly an area of interest for me. Um, no one in in European football has scored more goals than Scott Twine from outside the box since the start of last season, as of two weeks ago when I spoke about him on the telly. I think he'd scored 13 goals from outside the box since the start of last season. Uh, Messi was next best with uh, with nine or ten. So that, that's what we're dealing with here. Uh, for those who haven't watched a lot of MK Dons, firstly I would say go and watch the highlights because it, it's uh, it's 
something pretty amazing to behold. Um, you signed a player in the summer with with this skill set, so there's some context for you. Yeah, the uh, the MK Messi. Um, intrigued by when you're looking at a player of his profile. Like I said, mentioned a few numbers there, but what kind of stuff are you are you looking at for attacking midfielders? Um, is it around expected goals for him? Is it something a bit more basic like like shots and goals that Ali's saying? And I guess for your recruitment as a whole, uh, is it very much that you have kind of positional profiles with this overarching philosophy for the club and you're finding stats and players within those that are, are going to suit uh, for the long term? Yeah, there, there, we've got player profiles for each position, but we're not in a position where we can be completely strict to those because of the market that we're in and, and the resources when we haven't got the biggest budget in League One, so we don't stick to those at all costs. So an opportunity comes up, then we have to assess it. Um, for Twiney, it was about... Um, almost going back to what I was talking about before, he had an, an outstanding skill set. You talk about somebody that can open the door, well, he can he can fire a football straight through it. So um, that was really interesting about him. So a team drops deep, all of a sudden we've got this guy now from outside the box that can unleash a shot from 25 yards. So that was part of it. There was a succession planning element to, to Scott Fraser potentially leaving as well, um, where we thought that, you know, box entries expected threat Scott was still really high um, and he just had this outstanding skill that probably catches all the headlines but actually as an influential attacking midfield player he still does the things that we would want regardless of the threat on goal um, and yeah I, I remember watching a game where he, you know it was in London and he'd hit the bar and he'd forced the keeper into a save and I, I'm looking at it thinking every, everything I know about analysis and XG should tell me that this is not sustainable but for him, it is, and you know the data can tell you that he he is somebody. Ever since he's played consistently in the FL, he beats the XG numbers. So we're we're obviously quite pleased with that, and hopefully that continues because that's just something that that he carries. What he's been able to do for us is actually fit in, and he's not, you know, he doesn't stand out as a specialist in that team because he can he can still play people into the box, and he can still play part part of the structure and, and the principles that Liam wants. Succession planning in, in player recruitment is something that Tom specifically talks about a lot um, as being reflective of uh, a, a team that's being run well and, and with the club's mid to long term interests at heart. Of course, that's really a, a central objective of the, the sporting director role. Um, so it leads us on nicely to my big question, really, that, that, that's been burning inside me as we travel up here, which is uh, as a sporting director of, of any club, in your case, uh, MK Nons in the third year of English football, how do you go about appointing a manager? Uh, and more specifically, the scenario that was thrown on you uh, back at the start of August, how do you appoint a manager when your manager, who has a very specific style of play that you've recruited to, leaves with six days before the start of uh, a league season uh, and moves to a club in, in the division above? On, on a very basic level, what happens next? You know, you have to mobilise. How do you do that? There's two things that that happen straight away, and and one is the noise that 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 kind of surrounds the appointment, and this is just in League One, so you know I feel for the guys that are, you know we saw it in the summer that there was some high-profile manager changes, but I can only talk from League One perspective, and and there is still a lot of noises. There's you know the phone's relentless straight away. People are are after your attention to try and apply for the job. The second part is what's actually happening. On Monday for training, mm. and and that's probably when we were on, um, you know, on the Sunday as it happened. That those was uh, my immediate thoughts for the staff and for the players. He didn't ask for any of this, and he, you know they were prepared to to start a season, and then and they had their own expectations for that season. So part to protect our culture and to protect them, we had to make some decisions really early about who left. You know, did Russ go on his own, or did all the all the staff go at once? Um, so I, I spoke to some people. I spoke to some high-profile um, sporting directors for advice, and, and my thoughts and the general uh, consensus was rip the band-aid off. If people want to go, you have to let them go. That was the message from the chairman as well. Um, so yeah, six people left the building. Um, Dean Lewington, our captain, he steps into interim charge. Um, in hindsight, that was a really important move because the group re really respected him. The average age is 22, but uh, Dean Lewington's 36, 37. So all of a sudden, he is their leader. Um, and that that made training consistent. That made the standard still high because they were never going to let him down. Um, and that 
that bought us time because the most important thing at this point is have I got time to run a process? Okay, Dean Lewington's in charge of the team, so we're we're okay. I felt like um, the staff that were that that were in place were all, all of a sudden they're doing two or three jobs. We had um, and one of the media guys was you know pressing uh, play and pause in the in the in the meetings in the pre-match meetings. So it's all it's all hands on deck, but actually. The buy-in that created, and you know, the door closed, and everybody that was in the room was MK Dons, and we had, to, you know, we we got our first league game on Saturday. We have to produce. Um, I remember Dean Lewington doing a speech up at Bolton before the game, and he said, you know, the club's in this room, and it's up to us now to represent the club, um, and that's leadership. That was that that was proper. Uh, in the background, then I'm trying to run a process to find the person that's going to replace Russ, um, and. The timing was extremely difficult because we'd already already done a large part of our recruitment and a lot of the players that we'd signed had sat in the room and said to me and Russ that I'm coming here for the style of play. So we were never going to abandon it. It was always going to be a similar, uh, broadly speaking, control, uh, uh, possession and intensity to the way we play. So yeah, that that was at the very start of the process, and then you've kind of got to mm -hmm. uh, deal with the noise and and all the applicants and 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 the succession planning that we had in place then to go and uh, run the process. But it's one thing having a process, right? It's in these moments where it needs to be robust, and and I dare say at at plenty of clubs. Uh, across England, across history, this is where the process gets tested and, and sometimes maybe thrown out the window in, in these tough times. So um, what exactly was your process? Um, you're someone who has to think long term for the club. And so I, I wonder if um, even though you have a manager, a head coach in Russell Martin that's doing a very good job that everyone's happy with, at, to what extent are you building uh, a sort of fairly fluid shortlist or managers of interest sort of all the time as you go despite being very happy with the current incumbent in order to to get you ready for these situations yeah and it was it, i mean i it, it was my first um a summer period as a sporting director so i i, I had literally just started that uh, because as as a, as a league one club if you're doing well you're always under threat of losing people players and the manager and i thought that might be the case for us down the line it came earlier than we anticipated um so yeah we had some thoughts the the absolute best thing that we did or or I did I guess is uh, between me and Simon and the chairman is we set um, a very clear criteria and it was it was only four points but because of the noise and the timing those points were really important to get rid of a lot of the people that weren't going to be relevant um, and the and the absolute point that we would not move on you know Simon always said it's it's like buying a house you, you know, the, uh, the living room might be the right size and the bedrooms are good, but the bathroom's a little bit small. So what's the one thing you're going to compromise on? Um, but the one thing that we would not move on is that somebody had to have taken a team and they had to have, take, uh, had to have taken them with success. Uh, and that could have been an 18s team, a 23s team or a first team. But we were too close to the start of the season. Our, first, our next three games after Bolton were Sunderland, Charlton and Ipswich. We could not put somebody in that position that had not been there before. Um, and actually, that probably went against what the club has done before in terms of, you know, Carl Robinson's first job at, at Paul Lince. A lot of the managers previously had come into their first jobs, but I didn't necessarily feel like that was the right time for somebody doing it uh, for us in the moment. I guess a very simple question. How much did data become part of that process for you? Yeah. Yeah, really important. And again, uh, we use Market Insights for that and, um, and a very talented analyst called Ram, who I'm um, reluctant to share because he's too good. <laughs> but um, yeah, so he, he uh, between me and him, he um, we did a lot of cluster analysis to find out what kind of teams were similar to us. Um, that was quite broad in, in the first part, but then once we found people that were interested, that's when we really started drilling down and and you're you're comparing them to how their teams attack, how their teams defend, but you're doing it really quickly because between me and Ram, we may be looking at three people a day because there's that many names in the process. Um, and that's where Liam's their team were, were really interesting. And he'd also had the um, the really diverse experience of being involved in the City Football Group. So, um, And he'd had success in the team. He'd been thrown into Lommel and inside a year, he'd, he'd turned them into a bottom two, bottom three team, into a top three team. So that kind of number one point criteria was a big tick straight away. 
I mean, we spoke on on the last podcast we did um, around kind of some blind spots of of public analytics at the moment, um, and I you know, one of them for me has been definitely kind of manager analytics and using data to profile managers. I think there's a lot of good stuff out there in terms of teams, but it's not always kind of boxed out around certain managers and the, and the manager styles. And you said something earlier around um, the formation arguably doesn't matter, and a lot of the the public analysis we've seen and. I'll be honest and say public, you know, analysis I've done for the Athletic at times is: do they play a formation that, you know, this team could play or these, these players could play? Um, interested to know was that is that a data point that you you cared about, or is very much more? These are the stylistic factors that we're looking at, and these are the things that we want to find, and not he's once played a three four two one at home or three four one two at home, uh, and that's something that we need to to check off. Yeah, no, it wasn't something that you'll. Like I said, we were we were exclusively a three at the back under Russ, um, but Liam had done I think four two three one for probably ninety percent of the season in Belgium. So, yeah, he, he was he was a good example where we looked at at the style and and we and we were prepared for him to change the formation. Absolutely, it it just so happened that in that pre-season he, he had changed Lommel to a back three and when he came in here and he looked at the squad he thought yeah you're a back three you can um, change to 4-2-3-1 Liam but we haven't signed any wingers <laughs> yeah exactly um, and, and that's potentially something where we need to be a little bit more versatile you think about you know breaking down these uh, these low blocks is there a moment where we go to 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1 and we have players that can operate in wide areas to stretch them um, I think we've got that in Liam because I think he is versatile. Uh, he hasn't changed yet, but we've spoken about it. What what different shapes would look like and what the changes would be there. Um, and I think that that was quite interesting for us because obviously Russ was a purist and he was his biggest strength is that he completely believes in it and and therefore he gets buy-in really quickly from the players. Um, but I did feel that as a club in in League One and you. You mentioned those eight games or so where we'd had, had a really high possession but hadn't brought them down. So I thought a degree of versatility would be important in this appointment. Um, and again, that was another box that Liam ticked. I guess on that, can you speak of the other two boxes that are missing at the moment? Uh, yeah, so um, so leadership qualities because of the timing um, and because the recruitment had been done for another head coach and needed somebody to come in who was able to... To hold the room and obviously get buy-in from these players that ultimately he he hadn't signed, um, and and for that you're you're kind of watching YouTube videos, you're seeing how they react. Um, obviously the interview process plays a part in this as well, but in the early stages you'll, you know what what does he talk about when they lose? What does he talk about when they win? And and Liam was very consistent. Um, and then the other the, there was actually two of us um, because the the versatile one wasn't really a, a criteria point, but the two of us then was uh, working with young players. So, um, we, as I said, our, our average age is around 22 and, and and a lot of these players are not the finished article. They've, they've still got further development to come. So, he'd had a great record at West Ham. I'd seen his West Ham teams and I, I'd actually seen him uh, kind of manage some difficult personalities in there as well and he did really well. And the final one was obviously a fit for the style of play. So, you've got... Um, You've got success with the team. You've got leadership qualities. You've got working with young players, and you've got obviously a fit to the brief and a, and a style of play. It's interesting from from my point of view. You know, you come from a analysis uh, scientific to an extent background as well, and it's it's that part of the manager search that that probably intrigues me the most is measuring the more intangible stuff. Um, you know, we are obsessed with tactics and and the the use of data to analyze football but of course being a manager a head coach is inherently about management as well uh, and i suppose leadership being the catch-all phrase that, that you use there just in terms of of trying to measure um the effectiveness of a personality of of those leadership squ- uh, skills to suit the uh, dressing room that you have in this instance a very young dressing room and we know within um different generations there's there's different personality types that will mesh perhaps better with a younger player than than those coming to the end of their careers so uh, if you could just speak a little bit more about how you began to uh, measure those sorts of things and, and work out yeah that that personality is clearly the right fit for us whereas there might have been someone who ticked three of the boxes but on leadership terms for whatever reason you might have been less sure yeah and obviously data there's no kind of data point that you can go to to get the, this kind of information so um I'd been really fortunate because I'd, um, I'm on a Masters of Sport Directorship at MMU and, and a part of that course, the first unit, 
is purely about leadership. So I had some some fresh theory in my mind when I was kind of looking at how people hold themselves and how they act. And also when I spoke to Liam, he did um, he did one of his on a course he did a major project was on feedback and the role of the leader in feedback. So one of the things you point to is actually just an awareness of your leadership style. Um, and that was something I thought he had. Um, and also he's, he was obviously a touch younger than some of the other candidates. So I, I thought that he could uh, relate to our young squad. He had experience of feeding back to young players. Um, and we had a group that were thirsty for information. You know, these players take on the data, they take on the video, they take on everything. Um, and I thought that his personality fitted the way that that was going to be fed back to them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we talk about the process, you make your decision, you appoint the head coach. Um, the season has already begun, I think two games in by the time Liam took his first game. Uh, we're now 15 games in, so we're able to, to ask you uh, how you think it's going so far, uh, because it's it's ultimately uh, in your role, the appointment of a manager uh, and good player recruitment. These are the things that you'll, you'll be measured on ultimately uh, in your own role. Uh, Liam's actually spoken to Jack Pitbrook uh, for a piece in The Athletic um, and just quoting from that piece uh, because there's a lot of talk about style of play of course it says uh, Liam Manning is uh, talking about his, his ideals of style of play possession build up from goal kicks in terms of controlling the ball these are what Manning calls his top line principles we want to control possession but with a purpose we want to be aggressive with our block and with our press and we also want to be adaptable and unpredictable so it's not about doing the same thing over and over again uh, you're 15 games in just on the, the cusp of the playoff places uh, at the moment um, what can you tell us about how you've seen this team evolve under the new head coach? Yeah, no, I think I think all those things you said is is kind of what he said at interview. So that's really pleasing to me that those are, are still things because, as I said, one of, of course the, it's one thing saying it; it's absolutely. another thing being able to implement it. Yeah. That's what managers are judged on. Absolutely, and th and that's why one of the, one of the key questions we asked at the time was, you know, what's your football philosophy, and actually, where does it come from? And the where does it come from is really interesting because when you lose three games in a row. What do you do? Um, and he hasn't changed when that's happened. So that's where we we probably take some confidence that we made a pretty good call. But um, it's not a perfect process. You know, we've, we've spoken about it um, quite clean here, but you're trying to make these decisions really quickly. You're ruling people in and ruling people out on maybe four or five data points that you've kind of looked at during a day. So I'm sure if we'd have had a much longer a time period we could have done a better job but I'm really happy with the outcome obviously it's certainly been interesting to watch you know from a, a progression standpoint from the last head coach is something that I've kept a very close eye on uh, as someone who who covers the EFL very closely um, looking at FB ref and going back to the the menacing possession stats I mean there was a game this season with 84% possession but that was against a team who went down to 10 men in the first half another one was 79% possession again against 10 men but even against teams who didn't go down to 10 men uh, three games already this season in, in a fairly short batch with 76% 74% 73% um, I know that that is very top line stuff those aren't the most important numbers for you but at, at, at the same time you must feel justified at least that there's an implementation uh, a continuation of the style of play is is, is happening uh, yeah, that must yeah, be sure. pleasing yeah no sure absolutely the the principles are broad so we we wanted somebody to play with control and obviously those possession stats indicate that we are um, but what uh, Liam has changed is we have turned from um, from being quite pattern based under Russ to more principle based and I think some of the players are enjoying that and it's, it's helped us probably get more out of our our forward players, probably Scott Twine, appreciates that little bit more freedom off the structure. Um, there is still a structure, but they, there. I was actually talking to Liam the other day about this. Is the moment you allow the freedom and the, and the moment you have to return back to structure, um, and they're really important from a coaching point of view because the team needs structure and they need certain patterns. But we also need to be able to um, to go and win a game off off a really messy period where we're, where we're playing against a team that play a completely different style. So a lot of the dirty side of the game or earning the right to play has to be achieved before the, you can then implement the style. Um, I think Liam's got that balance really well. And obviously he, he, he hasn't managed in League One before, but he's seen um, the real variance of styles of play. And that's probably the challenge that you don't see higher up. In the Premier League, there's a level of respect where a teams can't go and send four or five players to press Man City because if they do, they'll get punished. 
in League One, some teams will try and do that because they sense the blood and the reward for them is bigger than, well, if you play through us, then we'll just try and recover and, and defend it. There's not that level of respect, um, which is why we think, obviously, playing this style of football and moving up the leagues will it will help us stay there. So that's been a really interesting thing for him to understand. And I think 15 games in where we are, we would, uh, you know, if, if you'd have offered me this period, I would absolutely snap your hand off. That's, that's for sure. I guess bringing this conversation to a close, especially around the, the manager analysis, um, of course, there are always, there's always elements to which you think could have gone better. There's always some degree of, of luck in any process in sports. That's very much the nature of sports. Um, I guess for you, Liam, what are some of the key learnings that, that you've had throughout this manager process, throughout those, what would have been a very hectic and stressful two weeks. Is there a couple of things which you have in your own you know, little black book and think these are things that I've learned and I'll take with me throughout the rest of my career from this uh, fairly turbulent time? Yeah, I think there's there's a real standout one for me and, and me and Simon, who's a performance director, we, we talk about this probably every day. It's a culture of the club. So it, it's not a decision that that was possible to be made when Russ left. It was already here. The, you know, the people that all, all the staff that were here, all the players that were here. If they'd, if they'd just been one or two characters that, at the moment Russ had left, decided that this was, you know, the process was a load of rubbish, and I can't believe this has happened. If we'd have had one or two people that were leading people astray, that might have changed everything. Um, but we didn't. We had, like I said, the door closed, and everybody bought into it, and it brought everybody really close together. So then Liam came in and he, he said to me, you know, how have you recruited this group that, that are all so motivated and so together? Now, obviously, the process of losing somebody did actually escalated that. Yeah. And they're all young guys. They all get on. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And it, it's a constant thing with everybody that we bring into the environment. You think about the, um, the All Black Rule and, and things like that, yeah. about not having certain types of people in the dressing room, not having certain types of people in the staff. We do a lot of work on that to make sure the people are right so that when these things come along, everybody reacts in the right way. So that was the fundamental thing. Um, and then it was probably the little challenges and the, the decisions we all made along the way, you know, in, in terms of ripping the Band-Aid off, uh, people leaving that wanted to leave. You know, those were uh, learnings that I've taken that I'll do next time. Um, and then probably, hopefully I'll have more time to, to plan for it. I know, you know, hopefully it doesn't happen for a very long time uh, because that'll, that'll mean Liam's doing really well. Well, it's been so great to talk to you, Liam, um, and thank you for both welcoming us here today, um, but also for your openness in, in talking to us about things that we talk about every week in, in more general terms, but to, to get the insight from someone at the cutting edge, you know, within a club and, and having to make these decisions uh, and it impacting football clubs and, and lives to an extent and people's jobs. It's been absolutely fascinating. I think it sends Warville to Germany with some some food for thought for sure. So um, a massive thank you for having us. No, sure. Yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll do another minute's applause, I think, when the, <laughs> as soon as, as the recordings start. But no, but but yeah, and likewise to you, just keep going with the EFL stuff because, you know, the way you've raised the profile with the EFL is fantastic. So, um, you know, that's why I wanted to come on here to uh, keep banging the drum that clubs are doing things that are really exciting at this level and absolutely should be taken note of so well that's sickeningly nice all round <laughs> um, just a reminder guys that uh, we are doing this sort of thing every week on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast you can subscribe to us uh, on any podcast platform you can listen ad free if you're a subscriber to The Athletic as well and, and theathletic.com forward slash tactics is the place to go uh, to get a discount off an annual subscription so please make sure that you do that and join us again every week on the now Warville-less Football Tactics podcast brought to you by The Athletic The Athletic.